two years in a row, 2016 and 2017, I decided to have my year of joy. The philosophy back then was simple. If it brought me what I believed to be joy, I did it. If something did not bring me joy, I didn't do it. I only felt this joy in small batches. It was like spikes on a bar graph with large dips into depression or anger or fear. I did not feel filled up with joy. Frankly, I felt more empty chasing joy than when I didn't. Now I realize I missed a great opportunity. Had I taken the time to learn what joy really is, rather than accept my limited notion of it, I might not have felt so empty. The way I pursued joy back then led to the opposite of joy. My pursuit focused on what the external provided me. It was consumption-based and harmful because it brought me no closer to a joyful state and instead left me feeling untethered and miserable. A tricycle article I recently read pointed out that we tend to understand joy as passive. I know I did. As though people and acts can make us feel joy. Thing is, passive joy fades away. The Buddha apparently called this joy suffering or dukkha. The understanding here is that with our focus on suffering, it is easy to forget the more joyful parts of our lives. I recently read The Book of Joy, a conversation between the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, written by Douglas Abrams. These highly respected teachers spoke at length about joy, acceptance, gratitude, and so much more. The Dalai Lama's fundamental belief is that happiness, that outward expression of joy, is found in serving others. Also in the Book of Joy, Brother Steindl Rast says, joy is the happiness that does not depend on what happens. In other words, joy is inside us no matter what is going on around us. I've come to realize the joy I saw years ago was finite. The way I pursued joy did not fill me up, did not help me love easier, judge less, nor be more fully present. My search for joy was not based on serving others. Instead, I made it all about myself. A better path would have been to open myself to innate joy. Innate joy or unconditional joy is different. This kind of joy cannot be exhausted. Innate joy lives inside us always. The trouble is it is often hidden and no external stimulus can evoke it. We must, we must not chase joy, as I was doing. Joy is not pursued. It is an inner feeling. Once we expand our awareness, joy becomes vast. And happiness, that outward expression of joy, is ours. A Cambridge article says, happiness is achieved when a person can perceive reality unmodified by the mental construct we superimpose upon it. That same tricycle article I mentioned earlier tells us joy creates a spaciousness in the mind that allows us to hold the suffering we experience 
inside us and around us without becoming overwhelmed, without collapsing into helplessness and despair. Joy brings about inspiration and vitality, dispelling confusion and fear while connecting us to life. To feel joy, one needs only to open and allow it. Throughout my years of meditating, I've often heard this idea that everything we need is already inside us. I now know joy is like that, already inside us. In a tricycle article highlighting his new book, The Eight Gates of Zen, John Dado Laurie puts it this way. There is no teacher on the face of the earth who can actually give anything, and there is nothing you need receive, because each one of us is already complete, and what we seek is not outside ourselves. He goes on to point out that although everything we need to know we already have, unless we do the hard work of uncovering it and making it our own, it is of no use to us. This idea of, being, of it all being inside us conjures up Michelangelo speaking to how he releases what is inside a giant piece of marble. Every block of stone has a statue inside it. It is the task of the sculptor to discover it. In the same way, we work to uncover that which already resides within us. It takes dedicated focus and likely some skill to release what is already within us. Just as releasing the sculpture from the stone takes great skill, that skill or combination of skills also likely resides inside us. When seeking to unlock what is within, there is no need to fix anything that may be deemed unpleasant. Instead, allow everything to just be. Everything belongs. Thich Nhat Hanh said, the art of happiness is also the art of suffering well. I love that phrase, suffering well. There is so much to unpack there. By suffering well, we may transform ourselves further by turning suffering into understanding, compassion, and joy for ourselves and others. Many of us don't know how to handle our suffering, so we cover it with consumption. Again, we're chasing happiness and joy in all the wrong places. If we don't face our suffering and instead continue to mask it, we risk not being present and available to life and joy and happiness will elude us. However, the Dalai Lama leaves us with something to consider. Why be unhappy about something if it can be remedied? And what is the use of being unhappy if it cannot be remedied? I hope we can all uncover the joy within us so we may see that all any of us wants is to find that joy and unlock the happiness we know can be ours. If that feels too big a task right now, perhaps simply hold on to the idea that all you need is already inside you. All you need to do is channel your inner Michelangelo to release the sculpture within, to release your joy whenever you feel ready. About a year or so ago, I posted something on my personal Facebook page that I thought would be relatively innocuous, but it turned out to garner so much intensity of response that it was surprising. The post was a question, one that I was trying to find the answer to, since it seemed that there was more than one opinion about the correct way to do this thing. So here was the question. 
when you go, here's the church and here's the steeple, open the doors, here was the question. Do you do see all the people or see all the people? Yeah. So do you open the doors or do you flip your hands over was my question. And I hesitate to tell you the way that I was doing it because I don't want an influx of angry emails after this service. But suffice it to say, see all the people brought out a lot of strong opinions on Facebook. There were 105 comments on that on that post, although many of those were mine, defending my apparently incorrect position on this theological matter. And it's likely that the strong response that I received had something to do with the people who, who I am friends with on Facebook, namely a lot of you and other UUs, many of my UU minister and religious colleagues. Here, here's the church, see all the people? is a matter of our Unitarian Universalist polity. Polity is just a fancy word that means organizational structure. And in religious communities, polity means something theological. We organize ourselves in ways that align with our deepest beliefs and values. Unitarian Universalists believe in congregational polity, which is a relatively flat structure. There are religious leaders and clergy. We are not radically congregationalists like, say, the Quakers. But many of the important decisions are left to you, the people. There's no pope or bishop in Unitarian Universalism. We have annual meetings where the members decide things like our budget, who will serve on our governing board and other important board committees. The members make decisions about calling a new minister and can affirm our mission statement or public stances about social justice, such as our decision to become a sanctuary congregation. In other words, while my professional title is senior minister and Allie's is associate minister, we are not the only ministers. We are all ministers. The 16th century Catholic priest turned reformer, Martin Luther, came up with the term the priesthood of all believers. In this, he challenged the idea that only a few could hold the office of priest and mediate the relationship with God for others. He said that everyone who had faith could do that. Later, the Unitarian theologian James Luther Adams riffed off that idea with his own the prophethood of all believers, which extended the idea of religious leadership to everyone, not just through priestly ministerial duties, but also through prophecy, or what we would now call justice work, or speaking truth to power, or bringing love to fruition in the world. Adams claimed that as Unitarians, we all had this right and responsibility to not only be ministers in our tradition, but prophets. The reason I'm sharing these ideas with you today is because our fellowship is at another transitional point, another crossroads. Almost seven years ago, our beloved senior minister, 
the first one who had served as a settled minister here and who did so for 25 years, the Reverend Roger Birchhausen left. And then we had two years of interim senior ministry before I arrived, almost five years ago. A few years ago, our beloved music director of nine years departed, and Dr. Steve Seek joined our staff. This past summer and fall marked the transition of Reverend Leah Angiri, our former associate minister who moved to Portland, Oregon, and then resigned from our fellowship. And we're grateful for Allie for staying with us to help us through this time of transition. And now we know that our amazing director of congregational life, Marie Luna, who has created this role, grown it and grown her profession, and served this fellowship faithfully for 16 years, is moving on at the end of May. It's a sad loss for us, even as it is a wonderful opportunity for Marie to grow further in her profession and share her gifts with the wider UU world. But I just want you all to know that the kind of longevity that we have been so privileged to have here in our professional leadership is not common in churches. And it's not common in UU churches in particular. The average UU minister serves in one setting for about five to seven years. It's not typical to have a music director for nine years or a congregational life director for 16. We have been exceedingly lucky to have such stable, wonderful, professional leadership. And the shadow side of that is that it makes it harder to say goodbye. Additionally, when those goodbyes are said, we are left with questions of identity and purpose. Who are we? It's easy when the leadership is stable and loving and capable to begin to over-identify with them as the fellowship. But Roger was not the fellowship, nor was Dottie, or Leah, or Jay, or Marie, or Allie, or me, for that matter. We are not the fellowship. You are. Here's the church, and here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the professional staff? No. See all the people, whichever way you do it. I know right now our building is sitting empty again. We gather on Zoom and see all the people is a little frustrating because, you know, of course we're not seeing all the people right now, at least not in person, but our fellowship is still the people. It's still you. Cindy, our worship leader, shared with us different ways that she sees the concept of joy and how innate joy has become a central tenet in her life journey. In the book of joy that she referenced, Douglas Abrams observed a gathering between the Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama. And this quote called to me as we consider what it means to each of us be the members, be the ministers of our fellowship. Quote, I think almost all of us are surprised how our joy is enhanced when we make someone else happy. The archbishop said with a laugh, quote, 
Our book says that in giving we receive. I've sometimes joked that God doesn't know very much math. Because when you give to others, it should be that you are subtracting from yourself. But in this incredible kind of way, we give, and then it seems like, in fact, you are making space for more to be given to you. He goes on, there's a physical example in the Dead Sea. It receives fresh water, but it has no outlet. So it doesn't pass the water out. It receives beautiful water from the rivers, and then the water goes dank. It just goes bad. And that's why it's the Dead Sea. It receives and it does not give. We are made this way too, Desmond Tutu says. In the end, generosity is the best way of becoming more and more joyful. End quote. And this reminds me that being the fellowship, serving each other, helps bring us joy. It is how we are made. We are made to be in community. It can be easy to focus on the things that are hard, the pandemic, the closures, Zoom, so much Zoom, the challenges of ongoing staff transitions. But if we remember that we are made for joy and that we are made for generosity of spirit to serve each other, we can find ways to move forward as a community with joy and love. In her book, when Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron, the Buddhist monk and teacher. She writes, things falling apart is a kind of testing and also a kind of healing. We think that the point is to pass the test or to overcome the problem, but the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and then they fall apart again. It's just like that, she says. The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for sadness, and for joy. We don't set out to save the world, she writes. We set out to wonder how other people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. End quote. Thinking about our fellowship transitions and all the ways that this world feels like it's falling apart, in this way, this gives me hope. And that word, joy, the healing comes, Pema Chodron writes, from letting there be room for all of this to happen. Room for grief, for relief, for sadness, and for joy. And I love how she ends this quote, we don't set out to save the world. We set out to wonder how people are doing and to reflect on how our actions affect other people's hearts. Our own universalist ancestor, Hosea Ballou, who we heard about in the reading that we heard earlier, articulated our historical universalist faith as insisting that human beings are created to be fulfilled and happy. Balu believed that human emotions are what prompt us to either immoral or moral action. And so he invites us to strengthen those emotions that reap happiness for self and others. Whether we learn from the Buddhist teacher Pema Chodron, the Anglican Christian Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Sufi Muslim poet Hafiz, 
or the universalist Hosea Ballou, they tell us the same ultimate truth. We were created for joy, for happiness, and that the surest path to that joy is through connection and service to others. The title of today's sermon is The Ministry Inside Us. I know another transition is hard. It's hard for me too. It's sad to lose another longtime beloved staff member. And we can grieve for that loss and celebrate what comes next for Marie. And we can also see this as an opportunity to find our own ministry in this transition to find our way to reconnect to each other in big and in small ways to be the fellowship, to find joy in rediscovering the ways that each of us has a ministry to each other, whether that is through music or art, teaching, technology, leadership, justice-making, speaking, writing, cooking, gardening, or helping in some other way. We each have ways to connect in service, and in doing so, to find our joy. So this transition is a chance. And what do we do when we have a chance? We take it. We have been given a chance, another chance, to move into our future boldly and with courage. And as the poet said in so many words, We sometimes forget that we were created for joy. Our minds too busy, our hearts too heavy for us to remember that we've been called to dance the sacred dance of life. We were created to smile, to love, to be lifted up, and to lift others up. Oh, sacred one, untangle our feet from all that ensnares. Free our souls that we might dance and that our dancing might be courageous. Amen. And may it be so.